Let's join together in prayer. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we turn to the scriptures this morning for your encouragement and also for a change in perspective from us, that we would see things that we don't normally see, look into heaven and see the one seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. We pray in his name. Amen. We come to this last chapter of Daniel that we'll be looking at together. And before we get much further, I want to say that it's important that we recognise when all these things that Daniel saw took place. We're told this particular vision occurred in the first year of King Belshazzar. Now, when we last met this king, it seems that Daniel had been relatively forgotten. Though he'd been a great leader, an effective servant of Nebuchadnezzar, it seems that under Belshazzar he'd almost been pushed aside, no longer in the limelight, in fact much more in the twilight of his life, retired so to speak, put out to pasture if you want to put it another way and perhaps might be conscious that his days of usefulness and service to the Lord were finished. Now, by deduction, given at the end of chapter 5, King Belshazzar's end came very swiftly upon him, then it must be the case that the visions that Daniel here saw in chapter 7 took place before King Belshazzar had his downfall. Does that have any bearing on anything? Well, not really, except to say this, that maybe the Lord in his grace and mercy gave these visions to Daniel at the time that he did, before Belshazzar's demise, not just to reveal truth for time and eternity, for us who read of the scriptures, but also for Daniel's sake, to comfort his servant, who may have well been wondering in his retirement what in the world was going to happen while this King Belshazzar was on the throne. Whatever you may say or think about Nebuchadnezzar, at least he had big thoughts and big dreams and he was an effective ruler. King Belshazzar was not like his grandfather in respect at all. And so it's in this context that the vision comes to Daniel. Now Daniel was a man who has always been able to keep his eyes on the big picture. But in these visions, God was asking Daniel to consider an even bigger picture than before and he'd ever, ever contemplated. Note, as you will, as we've read through the book of Daniel, that God was called, that Daniel was called by God to face test after test after test. And they didn't get smaller. Each test got bigger. He was now called upon to face and interpret larger and bigger realities. Now we've already noted the general theme of the book of God's control of all the kingdoms of the world, even against the opposition of the kingdoms of the world. 
even Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Israel. It's already been made crystal clear in the first six chapters. It's not an accident. God is in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's part of his plan and he will prevail even over the mightiest empire of earth. Even if the vision that Daniel had just freaked him out just a little bit. Now I've met some people over the years who like horror movies. That is a part to say from viewing their own face in the mirror every morning and seeing that. They actually like to watch horror shows. I can't speak from experience, not being one that's a horror movie theme fan, but I remember when I was five or six being totally freaked out by a movie called The Blob. Do you remember that? Did anyone ever see The Blob? My goodness. I had to leave the room. I don't know why I was watching it. It wasn't really scary, but I was scared. And I remember sleeping the light with the light on that night. Well, so far for Daniel in chapters 1 to 6, it's been tough, but not nightmarish. But now it's about to become nightmarish. He'd found himself in a strange land, seen kings come and go, had dreams given to him to be interpreted, seen those kings rise and fall, but in chapter 7, he sees his own nightmare with a horror theme that has a happy ending. His own nightmare with a horror theme that has a happy ending. Start of chapter 7 brings us to the second part of the book, which seems to have a more forward focus. Uh, chapters 1 to 6 have been about Daniel's life in Babylon, but chapters 7 to 12, God has sort of let, lifts up the veil and lets Daniel see what's coming on the things that were ahead of him and ahead for all of us, that is the future. Keep in mind, of course, that the terms past, present and future are really for our benefit. With God, everything is present tense, even the future. Uh, God sees everything that is past and everything that is to be for us and he sees it all at the same time. And here he chose to reveal his knowledge of what is the future for us to mankind in a vision to a man. Now it would quite it would take quite some time to unveil everything about Daniel's visions. But there are matters that Daniel's nasty dream teaches us about and these matters are not best skipped over. And I want to think about them this morning under two headings with three applications. First thing that verses 1 to 8 and verses 15 to 28 of Daniel 7 tell us about are visions of human authority. Now we've already established in our series in chapters 1 to 6 that if you're at all like me in regard to dreams, then your dreams don't make much sense as mine are more like crazy nonsense. But not so in this case. Even though this dream was full of frightening images and to some extent a repetition of the vision of the four great world empires that had been given at an earlier dream to King Nebuchadnezzar, this dream and all its images had meanings and a message. 
and the contents of the dream are not hard to grasp. What Daniel saw was portrayed on the background of a great sea which was being lashed into fury by the four winds of heaven. The troubled waters of the sea is an expression used in scripture as a symbol of the restless nations of the world rising and falling. And from these restless nations, four beasts arose. The first was like a lion. It was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. Lions don't usually have wings, do they? But even odder is the fact that they were plucked off while Daniel was looking. The winged lion has been found in excavations made in cities of ancient Babylon and was symbolic of the king's might and his speedy conquests. The vision records how this lion was suddenly halted in his tracks and how it became more tolerant and humane. Maybe this is a reflection of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 when for seven years he lost his sanity and was restored again. And the vision suggests this in the reference to the lion being stood on its feet as it became a man and a man's heart was given to it. Well, by the time Daniel saw this vision, the kingdom it symbolised had already been taken over by its successor, the next beast, the bear. The beast, the bear, was formidable, was strong and cruel and cunning, but not as majestic as the lion. It's a fitting symbol of the empire that succeeded Babylon, the Persian Empire, which was inferior to Babylon in power, in civilization and nobility. The strange feature described by Daniel was that the bear had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Not a pleasant sight at all. This tells us of the empire feeding on captive nations in cruelty and inhumanity. After the bear, Daniel saw the leopard. Now this was a curious sight, wings of a bird and four heads. Again, it was an appropriate image for the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great, its founder, extended its territory with lightning-like speed, reaching India in his conquests. And just as a leopard is an elegant beast, the Greeks were renowned for their culture. The leopard had four heads and this is often taken as referring to the division into the, in, of the kingdom into four on Alexander's early death when his generals divided the whole empire into quarters. Now with these visions of lion and bear and leopard, you'd think enough's enough, thanks very much, but the worst is to come. As the dream unfolds, not only does each of the first beasts become more cruel and awful than the one before it, but then the fourth beast, which is not given a name but only a description, is described as even more awful and powerful with its large iron teeth and behaviour so cruel and savage that it can't be compared with any known animal, hence 
the artist has, predict, has painted for us or provided for us something quite unusual. A frightening creature with tremendous power. And Daniel did his best to use the imagery that he had and the words of his day to describe it. You wonder what he would have used today when he described it. Maybe laser beams coming out of its mouth or intercontinental ballistic missiles being fired from its ears. If this fourth beast represents a fourth kingdom, more advanced than the previous three and later in human history, then commentators suggest that the beast is representative of Rome. Interestingly, Daniel describes this beast as having ten horns and while looking at it, an eleventh horn grew. In that horn uprooted three of the ten horns that already existed and had human characteristics such as an eye, such as eyes and a mouth. In verses 23 to 24, we're given the interpretation of the ten horns. There he was told that the ten horns represented ten kings and their kingdoms, and the little horn that spoke so much and boasted so much, even in the presence of God, the epitome of a man trying to rule the world apart from God, probably, possibly, the Antichrist himself. But then secondly, we see in verses 9 to 14 of this chapter that in his dream, Daniel saw visions of divine authority. Daniel's dream continued in verse 9 and we note that the scene changes from horror to wonder. When Daniel continues to look, he is granted a vision of God seated on his throne and it is God who acts to cut short the reign of the beasts. In the vision, God is pictured as the chief judge on a panel of judges and he is described for us by this name, the Ancient of Days, in the seat of supreme authority. Now this name, Ancient of Days, is one of the many Bible names for God, one that indicates that he has lived throughout the entire course of human history and in fact predates it. He is not bound by time. He has witnessed everything human rulers have done. As a judge, he does not rely upon second-hand testimony, so his judgments are perfect. The white clothing and the white hair that symbolise his innocence It's not hard to see that when Daniel looks, he has a courtroom in mind as he views the throne. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands are before this throne. Books are opened, judgments are likewise issued and the fourth beast is is destroyed in the stream of fire that issues forth from the throne. There is no doubt that this is a scene of judgment that God's judgment in the world and upon these kingdoms is certain and sure. But the vision becomes even greater with the entrance of the Son of Man in verses 13 to 14. 
He was given by the Ancient of Days authority, glory, sovereign power and all the peoples and nations and men of every language bowed down in worship to him. His dominion is described as being an everlasting dominion and his kingdom one that would never be destroyed. What can we say about this figure, the Son of Man? Well, for a start, he was granted a royal audience. He entered the presence of God in contrast to the beasts who were destroyed. And this authority that is given to him was unparalleled and absolute. And he is clearly equal to the Ancient of Days. He is separate from him, but he is equal to him. He is the Son of Man. And clearly with this access and authority and power that is given to him, he is not there as a rival to the Ancient of Days, but he is part of the family of the Ancient of Days. There is no doubt that when Jesus spoke of himself as the Son of Man, particularly before Caiaphas, as you see on the front of your pew sheets this morning, when he repeatedly used the term Son of Man, he was talking about this reference. And while Jesus often used that term, and we might take it to mean he's talking about his humanity, in fact what Jesus is highlighting is his divinity, that he is the one who stands before the throne of the Ancient of Days, whose kingdom never comes to an end and whose glory fills the whole world and whose rule is completely righteous and with the authority of God. And more than this, the appearing of the Son of Man before the throne of the Ancient of Days in the vision is sufficient sign that he already reigns at the right hand of the Father and he is waiting for all things to be completed and all things to be delivered under his feet. His day will surely come. The beast kingdoms hold sway on earth for a limited time but the kingdom that God hands over to the Son of Man and his saints is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. We'll sing later. His kingdom shall stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. The scriptures say of him, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What then... How can we apply this? What can be said about what all this means to us? How can these truths be applied to God's people in the day and age in which we find ourselves? I'll suggest three ways in which they apply this morning. First, they apply in where we can find security. These kingdoms of men that Daniel saw we're still in the future for him, but they have long since gone for us. 
They may have been powerful and established with amazing speed and extensive boundaries, but none of them have lasted. In fact, each time a kingdom arose, another powerful, more powerful one would gobble it up. The warning for us is plain. Though mankind looks all around us, all around us looks to men and the systems of men and the governments of men and the armies of men for security in the world, trusting in men is foolish and fanciful. The world offers nothing that is secure. Remember that. When we as a group of people, as a nation, collectively or as individuals, when we build our hopes and our dreams on any man or anything that man has made or invented or anything that man relies upon, including wealth, we are not secure. The only sure path to security is to be in the hands of God. The only kingdom that lasts is his kingdom. Everything else is but sinking sand. And this book that we've been looking at tells us that these great Babylonian kings learned that lesson the hard way. We are offered the lesson painlessly. And we would be fools to ignore it and be like the rest of the world if in ignorance we turned our back upon it. Something that's been told to us again and again in these chapters. Something we heard in Psalm 2 this morning. The only place to be is in the hands of the Son and his rule and his kingdom and belonging to him. Second, these visions apply to where we find salvation. The scene Daniel saw of books being opened before a great throne is one that the book of Revelation continues to explore. In fact, the similarities between the last half of Daniel and the book of Revelation are very striking, but I'll leave that for another day. And what Revelation 20 and 21 tell us is that what Daniel saw was no dream, but it was ultimate reality. In heaven, books are opened. In heaven there is one upon the throne who is the Ancient of Days. In heaven there is one who stands beside the throne, even the Son of Man. When Stephen was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, it tells us that the heavens were opened and he saw into heaven and he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand side of God. Some people say, well I thought Jesus was sitting. He sits at the right hand side. No, but he was getting up to welcome Stephen as he was about to enter heaven. It's reality. This is not comic book stuff. This is not a game. This is real and because it's real, it carries with it a stern warning to be in relationship with the Son of Man is the only way of escape from the judgment of the Ancient of Days. I'll put that another way. To be found in Christ is the only way to, to be safe from the wrath of God. And while many things about that day of judgment are unclear, it is not unclear what the Son of Man did for us. And that salvation through faith in his name is guaranteed to all who come to him in repentance and faith. Have you done that? 
Have you put yourself into his care and said, I commit myself to you. Please be my saviour and rescue me for the wrath of the Ancient of Days is great and terrifying. Third, because they apply in terms of security and salvation, they also apply in where we'll find hope. Looking at the world will not bring us much hope. Looking at our state doesn't bring us any hope. But this vision is a reminder there's a glorious hope before us while we live for now in an age when sin and evil rules the day. Things are not always what they seem. What we see on the world stage is one thing, but lift the curtain a little. Cast your eye over the scene Daniel speaks of and see the one who is seated on the throne to whom all power and might is given and suddenly this horror nightmare has a happier ending. It's not the whole story and it's not over yet but we know that no matter what happens, Jesus wins. If you take a look in the back of the book, you'll see that Jesus wins. We know that, of course, with our heads, but we also need to believe it. Our problem is that we're sometimes like the signpost that someone has in the front yard around the corner from the manse. It's solid, this signpost, it's a direction post, it's got posts, signs pointing all directions. It's solid, it's well well built and brightly coloured, it won't fall down, it's easily seen. But the issue is the way that it's pointing. Whoever built it and said that's north got it wrong. That's actually south, that's north. And so all the other places that it's listed on its signpost are all wrong because it's got north and south confused. That's our problem. We're looking the wrong way. We're looking around and we're looking down but we forget to look up. The chapter reminds us that we always must be looking up. That our gaze must penetrate beyond what we see into the throne room of God. Now all of us could speak of circumstances that we know in our lives that can overwhelm us and bring us to despair. We live with these, we know them, we live that experience every day. But you also live with what you cannot see. That in the throne room, the Ancient of Days rules and the Son of Man is at his right-hand side. And our hope in this life as believers is not fixed upon world powers, rulers or premiers. It looks beyond them to see the one who is on the throne, reigning as all his power and who will one day take us to reign with him. That's the big picture that Daniel had to grasp and that's the big picture that I bring to you before you this morning to keep before your eyes. Will you do that? Keep looking up. Let's do so. Let's pray together.
We thank you, Heavenly Father, that even in difficult texts we find something of help and and importance and encouragement to us so that our knowledge might grow but also our perspective might be changed. We thank you for him who entered into heaven for us not bearing the blood of bulls and goats, but taking his own blood, shedding that blood, that we might be spared from your wrath. As we pray, we're asking you not only to come and take your rightful place, which you will do, but to make that evident to the whole world so that all will know that there is one who rules and reigns and his kingdom will be forever. We thank you for bringing us into that kingdom. We're looking forward to the day when we can share the rule and reign of Jesus and live with him and see his glory. But now, Lord, we don't see that. Help us to speak of him who is coming again and who rules and reigns right now. We ask it in his name. Amen.